Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. With me, as always, is smiling Chuck Bryant. I'm smiling. How are you doing, Chuck? I feel like I was just whisked in here like uh, Elvis or something. You were. You're like Krusty the Clown when he comes in to do uh, the recording for a Krusty doll. Right. You, you remember hey, that? Hey, hey. Yeah. Again. <laughs> hey, hey. That's my best. Yeah. So uh, Chuck came in on a sick day? On a wing and a prayer. I just walked in. Yeah. Traffic's bad. It's nasty Awful. out. So raining. Nasty. Raining. Cold. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about something else that uh, is cold. Hey, nice. Mercenaries. Yeah. Chuck, we've talked about Delta Force before. Uh-huh. Remember we had to keep our composure? Sure. Because we were tittering and excited and all that. Yes, and we were t- taken to task a little bit by yeah, liking right. violence. That's <laughs> not necessarily going to happen in this one, I have a feeling. Nah. No. Um, mercenaries, uh, which are, as I think everybody knows, are soldiers for hire, are pretty much universally hated by everybody. Are they? Yeah. Okay, I didn't get that. Uh, yeah, nobody likes a mercenary. One of the reasons why is because when you go to war, mm-hmm. most people go to war because somebody's getting pushed around by some other big jerk country. Sure. Or, um, you know, there's some dictator that should be toppled. It's ideological on the, su- on the surface. Right, right. And that's what attracts, you know, brave men and women, braver people than us. Much. Who go into service, not for money, because they they want to protect democracy or freedom or what have you. Gotcha. Mercenaries don't do that. They go and say, uh, this country's paying a lot right now for right. this war that they're in, and I'm going to go kill for them. Sure. For money. I'm killing for money. They're pretty much hitmen. Yeah, I didn't realize the, the fascinating history of the mercenary until I read this. No, and William Harris, by the way, did a humdinger of a job. He did. He did a fine job. Yeah. So, uh, Chuck, let's talk about mercenaries. Where, where do they come from? Well, Josh, the earliest uh, account that we know of is about 2,400 years ago when uh, Persian prince and general Cyrus the Younger, which I like that, Cyrus the Younger. Right. Not to be confused with Cyrus the elderly guy. Right. The bald. Right. Uh, He hired the 10,000, which was an army of Greek mercenaries, to seize the uh, throne in Persia. Right. And I have to, from his own brother. Yeah. What, uh, Cerses? Yeah, and I've, I've, Stacey's? I'm not sure, but I've seen the movie 300, so I bet the 10,000 were pretty tough. Yeah, and I was wondering, are the 300 and the 10,000 related? Are the 300 the remains of the decimated 10,000? If so, they're tough dudes. They were tough dudes. That was a great movie. I enjoyed it. That stupid disfigured guy gave him up. Yeah, and oh, the abs. <laughs> Did you know in that movie they, they uh, wanted to recreate what these guys probably looked like? So when oh, really? they were training, uh-huh. they didn't use any equipment. They did things like roll tires up hills. Oh, and, like, really? did like real like earthy um It's like the, the strongman competition. Very much. They carry like concrete beer kegs and stuff. Right, and like pick up tractor trailers. Yeah, I like concrete those. Concrete beer kegs. What a waste of beer. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So, yeah. So that was back in what, 401 BCE? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and since then, we've pretty much used mercenaries uh, almost uninterrupted. Yeah. So they made a uh, pretty big splash, I guess you could say, in the Hundred Years' War. Which lasted longer than a hundred years, by the it way. It did. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, they're not going to say, what, the Hundred and uh, Sixteen-Year War. Yeah. That doesn't have the <laughs> same ring to it. Ring. Between the English and the French. 
from uh, 1337 to 1453. Well, that's the problem with the long war is that your armies are going to be decimated. Precisely. So you have to turn to the, you know, the paid for hire guys. Well, not only that, the uh, standing political army didn't really appear until I think the 17th century. So back back in this time, the, all these disparate landowning earls and dukes and, and uh-huh. princes, um, they had their own private armies, and they were right. all for pay. But um, a lot of them were drawn from their own countrymen. But, yeah, you make an excellent point. When you have a 100-year war, you're going to go through a lot of your countrymen. That's just kind of one of the aspects of war. So, yeah, um, in the 100-year war, a guy named Edward of Woodstock who's known as the Black Prince, which, by the way, from now on, I want you to call me the Black Prince. Uh, I was going to call you Josh of Woodstock. No? (laughs) No. Okay. Not for many years, buddy. Yeah. Um, He he made use of uh, mercenaries in uh, what? How do you pronounce this, Chuck? I'm going to go with chevauchee. Yes, which basically means burn, pillage, loot, and rape. Yes. Um, And that's our war. I think uh, fans of Blazing Saddles might know that better as the number six. Oh, yeah? That was in uh, where they go riding into town, whooping in a wampin' every living thing. Yeah, yeah. That's what they say in Blazing Saddles. Yeah. But they also had a number six dance later on, which was a really great line. Nice. Uh-huh. I wonder Bill if they had a chevauchee dance. Maybe so. Maybe. Probably not. I think it was a little more bloody and horrifying. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the um, the Hundred Years' War ends, and I guess the use of mercenaries kind of dried up for a little while, right? Yeah. So my weird. earlier comment about them being uh, used uninterrupted was totally baseless. Well, I bet you there were some mercenaries used here and there. Right. Just not as widely. Right. Let's talk about some famous mercenaries there, Chuck. Okay. Like the Swiss Guard. I think that's a good example. Pretty tough. Yeah, they made the point in here, uh, William made the point in here that sometimes uh, a soldier would get a specialty, a combat specialty, mm-hmm. so they would be sought out because of a, t- a particular war or a battle they might be in, and the Swiss Guard was such because they were masters of the pike. Right. And they're still around. There's a pretty cool photo of them. Um and they are holding their pikes. Really? And they look, yeah, it's it's, it's pretty awesome. That sounds like a euphemism. <laughs> They're holding their pikes? Yeah, I'm not going to go there. Uh, what about the other one? You speak German. I found out Chuck speaks German I just a week gonna... or so ago. So, <laughs> yeah. Chuck, how do you pronounce this one? I knew you were going to ask this, and I practiced it. I'm going to go with uh, Lanschkenechte. Uh, okay. That's better than what I was going to go And, you with. know, I do speak German, but that's a really tough one, even if... You are German. I'm going to say. Can you uh, can you say say hello to my little friends? Sagt hallo zu meinen kleinen Freunden. Yeah, <laughs> Chuck's a Beverly Hills Chihuahua fan, by the way. Right. So yes, those German soldiers actually also used the pike, and uh, but they also used uh, guns, which was kind of new in the 15th and 16th century. Right. Uh, muskets, mm-hmm. arquebus, arquebus. Yeah. So those guys made a pretty big um, impression. One of the reasons why they were. Um, I guess heavily sought after was because unlike the Swiss Guard, they, I mean, they specialized in different weapons, but they had like different aspects of their companies. Like, you know, somebody would use the musket, somebody else would use a pike, somebody else would use a sword. So they were like everything you needed all in one, right? Yeah. And actually, did you know that um, in the Revolutionary War, there were tons and tons of mercenaries? Not until this, and I'm surprised they have not made a film about it yet because William... And he even has this uh, uh, sourced, said that during the Revolutionary War, Americans probably fought more Germans than they did English, British. Right. Is that true? Is that possible? I could see that, yeah. Wow. It's crazy. You yeah. never hear about that. And uh, the, the one, of those, um, one of those mercenaries, German mercenaries, I think they're called Hessians, um, turned out to be the Headless Horseman. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Old Ichabod. Ichabod's foe. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. Ichabod was the... Yeah, he was the... He was the nerve-wracked man. Sure. So, uh, yeah, once, like we said, standing armies kind of became popular in the 16th century and never really... Uh, their popularity never waned, much unlike the, the twist. Um, they So, you know, political standing armies have right. been around for a while, right? You mean the dance, the twist? <laughs> yeah. That's good. Um, so, as a result, mercenaries have kind of fallen to the wayside uh, until... Um, World War Two, yeah, which kind of <laughs> changed everything. And a lot, of, a lot of World War Two was a probably the most landmark event in the last, I don't know, since the Magna Carta. Maybe everything changed after yeah. that. You know, Germans got volunteers actually, so technically they weren't mercenaries. We'll go over in a minute what the Gene- Geneva Convention actually says is a mercenary, but I think the Germans actually had volunteers from other country. Yeah, um, Freiwillige. <laughs> Just call them free willy, free willies. <laughs> so yeah, th- th- that was in World War Two, actually. Right. They were, um, yeah, and since they were volunteers and they weren't paid, they weren't technically mercenaries, but they fulfilled a lot of the other stuff, a lot of the other criteria. Right. Um, so then, yeah, after World War Two, um, part of the Geneva Convention, this agreement uh, among all of the uh, warring nations and the Allies on the rules of war, um, m- mercenaries and their use and their definition is very much addressed, right, Chuck? Yes, in the first protocol of 1977. uh, Should we go over the criteria? Yes. In order to be considered a mercenary, Josh, you must be uh, specially recruited to take part in the conflict, but not a member of the armed forces of the state that recruited you. Right. That's kind of a big one. Yeah. Like the German volunteers in World War II, they're from other countries. Exactly. Uh, You need to actively engage in hostilities. Otherwise, I guess you probably wouldn't be a very good mercenary. If not, you're just some guy standing on the sideline. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you are motivated by private gain, and you're paid substantially more than the ordinary armed forces of that state. Mm-hmm. Soldier we'll, of fortune. Yeah, we'll get into that, too, though. It's not quite as lucrative when you factor in some other things. <laughs> no. You know, I was kind of surprised about that. And... Um, what else? Is that the last one? Yeah, no, Chuck, that pretty much does wrap it up. I think you covered all the big points. Um, and even earlier than that, mercenaries were kind of put on the fringes um, right after World War II when the original Geneva Convention was established because they created the definition for a lawful combatant. Yeah. That's basically what we think of as a soldier, somebody who belongs to a nation. That's important, too. That's, that's at war. Right. Because if you're a lawful combatant, um, you can engage <laughs> in offensive conflict yeah with with people sure. in other countries you're you can protected. kill people and if you're caught you are um, expected to be treated as a prisoner of war exactly if you're a mercenary you are way far out there on the edge yeah you're kind of on your own like you can be tried for murder yeah and have tortured uh-huh. wh- whatever sure um and remember uh i think in september 2007 yeah. blackwater oh yeah very very famous um outfit Did, oh, i thought you were talking about the doobie brothers song <laughs> no. Oh, Blackwater? No. no. No, we're not talking about that okay, one at all. different guys. Um, yeah, you know Blackwater, right? Actually, I responded to someone asked to do something on Blackwater, mm-hmm. and I responded, yeah, maybe we should do one on the Doobie Brothers as a whole, and he didn't get the joke at all. He wrote back and said, no, that's weird that you thought that. I was really talking about Blackwater. <laughs> that's weird that you thought that. I know. You, you <laughs> burn out? Well, that's weird. You didn't get the joke. Right, yeah. Um, well, you remember, okay, so you are aware of Blackwater. Sure. Okay. And they, I think that right after this, they changed their name to Blackwater Worldwide, and now they're Z, X-E. Oh, really? Yeah. 
They, uh, they keep changing their name with sure. every horrible travesty. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, a lot of people call the, them mercenaries. They're now called private military contractors, but basically they supply soldiers of fortune, right? Yeah, for security mainly. Uh-huh. And um, that, remember in 2007 there was this horrible thing that went down in Baghdad where I think 17 Iraqi civilians were killed um, when the, when Blackwater um, contractors opened fire got at the trigger section. Happy. Yeah. Got real trigger happy. And uh, I think they, they found that 14 of those deaths were unjustified. Yeah, they broke the uh, deadly force rules. Right, and Iraq was chomping at the bit to prosecute these guys. Oh, yeah. I believe the U.S. stepped in and protected them. But, I mean, they, it was very possible for them to be prosecuted because... They weren't lawful combatants. Well, the U.S. uses a lot of these uh, contractors, as it turns out. Yeah. Because I, I saw the U.N. passed a resolution in the late 80s outlawing this kind of mercenary, mm-hmm. but the U.S. conveniently has still not signed that document because well, right. we, we want to hire the mercenaries. Because they, what, what happened is, and William makes a great point, is with uh, the different rules of warfare now, you have lots of weapon systems and um, soldiers that are trained to man these systems and operate these systems. So what happens is they're spread a little thin with um, some of these day-to-day duties like uh, security of like high-ranking civil servants, that kind of thing. Right. Which the military would usually take care of. Right. Um, anytime you see Hamid Karzai, you'll see a couple of white guys who wear Oakley sunglasses and have beards with, um, I guess, uh, Heckler and Koch um, guns. Yeah. And they are, I think, former Delta Force, but now they work for Z, yeah, the Blackwater. Not, they're not smiling. No, but they provide security, mm-hmm. and they can do that lawfully. You can provide security. You can provide um, a def- defensive security where you're not engaging in any right. offense whatsoever. Right, um, supposedly. Right, and then you're a lawful, or you're you're a mercenary under the Geneva Convention, right. and the guidelines and the protocol and all that, right? Yeah. I got a stat for you. Okay. Uh, I said that the U.S. likes to use these these soldiers of fortune. There's uh, there's no hard numbers, but they suggest that more than 180,000 mm-hmm. of these contractors are working in Iraq alone, and that altogether, all over the world, that they outnumber the United States military in total. Yeah. And we've spent about $100 billion in the Iraq war on these mercenaries. Right, which I think is something like a, a quarter or a third of the total that we had spent yeah, uh, when this article was written, I think in late two thousand eight, right? Yeah, which of course is smaller now. So, Chuck, you know, Africa's been a big site for mercenaries, and it still continues to be. That's what I hear. There's uh, pretty much any time there's a revolution, a coup attempt, something like that, and anybody has some cash, they hire outside mercenaries, right? Yeah. Uh, and there was a guy named Simon Mann. You remember this? Yeah. Back in two thousand four, in March two thousand four, Mann um, was the head of two companies um, that were private military companies, contractors, but basically mercenary outfits, right? Yeah, Sandline International, and I love the name of this one, Executive Outcomes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Uh, I, yeah, but it sounds so shady. Too, yeah, it does. It? Executive, like you can just see like their their company headquarters, Executive Outcomes. Uh-huh. It's like one of those offices that you wander into right. to ask like to use the bathroom. <laughs> right. And, and you're never like, leave. what is this place? What do you guys do here? And uh-huh. you're just escorted out when you wake up and on a park bench with yeah. like, a lump on your head. And you have like ink on your fingers. All right. So, uh, well, Mann, um, in March 2004, led a group um, 
of mercenaries from South Africa and I guess his company um, to Equatorial Guinea, and yeah. he didn't make it. He got picked up in Zimbabwe. It was a coup attempt. They were going to overthrow the government of Equatorial Guinea, um, the President Teodoro Obang, right? Nice. And uh, they got picked up uh, and held, and apparently he was just recently pardoned by President Obang and released in November. Uh-huh. Um, and he's out, and he is naming names. The story that he tells, now that he's back in Great Britain, is that uh, Mark Thatcher, Sir Mark Thatcher, whose last name you might recognize, his mom was the PM for a while. Nice, Marge. Um, and uh, some other people uh, from around the world had an interest in the oil fields at Equatorial Guinea uh, and hired, allegedly, hired time and man to right. go overthrow the government so they could move in uh, and get these oil revenues or control these oil fields. Yeah, and he was condemned pretty roundly. Man was. was, but he was fully pardoned by Obang. He was, yeah. He was in prison for five and a half years too. But he did have to shut down uh, executive outcomes, apparently. Right. Yeah, and Sandline. Yeah, they're they're probably opened up under another name though. Probably, probably not. But if you think about it, think about how people think of Blackwater, right? Or um, you know Simon Mann. No one cared that he was in prison for five and a half years, right? Like, and the reason why is because. He was a soldier of fortune. These are mercenaries. Yeah. You know, and people just don't think of them very highly. True. You, yeah. Can we name some of these other companies? Uh, yeah, sure. Just because I, I thought it was kind of funny, some of them. And if I had a mercenary company, I don't know what I would name it. But it would probably not be the Olive Group. <laughs> that was one of them. Yeah. And the, Triple Canopy. I'm that's not sure a weird that one. Means. That's probably a military term. And uh, what's another good one? This one's good. Kroll. K-R-O-L-L. Kroll. Yeah. yeah. That's, crawl that's will crush your government. Yeah, that probably stands for something. Um, the the one that got that I think stands out above all the rest is global risk strategies. Yeah, I can see us if sure. we go to Guatemala calling on global risk strategies right. to come get us out. <laughs> you know, I'd love to have that number actually handy. Kidnapped. Yeah, maybe we should look that up <laughs> and have it should. on us. So, Chuck, let's talk about another famous group of mercenaries that aren't necessarily kind of looked down upon: um, the French Foreign Legion. You know the guys with the white caps, the cape blanc, with the uh, <laughs> with the. Um, do you remember in the eighties, like when did you break dance? No. Did, do you remember those hats though? They were like baseball caps, but then they had the flap in back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were kind of based on uh-huh. Legionnaires hats. Yeah, you're right. Now, what's up with that? Oh, who knows? What a the, weird time for the French fashion. Are, uh, they're always leading the way, fashion forward. All right, so these guys with the white caps, right? Yes, the, the French, French foreign foreign legion, legion are. Technically, you could call them mercenaries, although they um, they can eventually gain French uh, citizenship through joining the Foreign Legion. Right, after three years. And they yeah. have to sign up for a five-year tour of duty. Five-year contract. And the French Foreign Legion was established in 1831 because when the French Revolution happened in July of 1830, apparently uh-huh. this opened the floodgates for people, I guess, seeking their fortune yeah. in France, right. in the newly free France Rep- French Republic. Um, and so the French said, well, you know what? Let's put all these ragamuffins and no good nicks to good use. Yeah. And they started the French Foreign Legion. So if you came in, if you wanted to become a Frenchman, uh, and I guess you were an able-bodied man, they said, sure, you can become a Frenchman. Yeah. Sign up for five years. We'll put you in the Foreign Legion. After three years, you can become a citizen. After the fifth year, you can come back and do whatever you like. And many were no good nicks, actually, in the early days. Mm-hmm. And still, it's, yeah, it's, it's much still like, some uh, Mike, uh, joining the circus. Right. Or, you know, sometimes we have some no-good nicks that join up in the Army at 18 because 
their uh, you know parole officer says that might be a good move for him. Right. Yeah. And the army will shape him up and turn him into good citizens. Right. Hopefully. Yeah. Pretty or cool. vengeant killers. So can we talk more about the legionnaires? I think we should. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, they they get um, recruited and they uh, get approved for pre-selection, and that means you get a little medical checkup and what they call a quote confirmation of motivation. Right. They want to make sure you actually do want to do this. Or right. You're aware that you're signing up for five years to go be in the military. Right. And once you pass through that stage, you go to uh, another set of like more thorough questioning and medical uh, checkups, and then you go to basic training for 15 weeks. A little country town in the south of France, mm-hmm. and at the end of that, they introduce you to your, you know, your comrades and your military life. And you, they teach you French. Ideally, you can speak a little French at the end of this, right. and then at the end, you get your capé blanc, right? Which is that goofy-looking white hat, right? And it is goofy-looking, isn't it? It is, and it kind of stands out. It's not very practical. No, and uh, there's a picture of a modern foreign legionnaire. French Foreign Legionnaire. Oh, really? Uh, and he does. He's wearing like a beret and camo and all that stuff. Oh, okay. So I think it's kind of like their dress, sure, thing, right? Um, but so okay, so you have gone through basic training. You're a legionnaire now. Mm-hmm. Um, the, apparently, there's eight thousand of them at any given point in time. Uh, right now, they hail from 136 different countries. That strangely, including France itself. Yeah. How does that so, work? So I don't know. We'll have to find out. Yeah. Um, so the. Uh, they, they, after you get through basic training and you're, you're now a legionnaire, they send you to, I guess, one of 11 regiments all over the world. Yeah, it's Chad, some, yeah. Ivory Coast, Afghanistan, all over the place. Some places you don't really want to be. Yeah, I would imagine you want to go to Chad. No. Uh, I got another stat for you. Okay. 1831, Josh. Since then, more than 35,000 legionnaires have been killed in combat. Right. It's a lot. Yeah. I think part of the reason, and we mentioned that legionnaires aren't necessarily looked down upon, even though they are pretty much a mercenary group, because they they do get paid and they don't they're not doing it for ideology, right? But I think the fact that you sign up for five years, you can attain citizenship through this, and you're serving a specific nation, sure, kind of adds like kind of a military tinge to it. You know I what I mean? So. Well, they're no more as soldiers instead of contractors, right? Let's talk about the contractors there, Chuck. Yeah, these guys are typically ex-military or former police officers. Um, the badder, the better, you know, like Green Berets, Delta British Force. SAS, Delta Force. This is who you want in your PMC. Yeah, like Simon Mann was a ex-SAS uh, guy. Right. Yeah. So these uh, these dudes are brought in. They are paid, um, it says 600 to $700 a day, sometimes up to $1,000 a day for their work. Yeah. Not bad. It's substantial. But what we were saying earlier is, and this is kind of funny, is they typically don't get benefits. Which surprised me. I thought I any company would want to get a benefit plan together. I know, but no, you can't get a break as a mercenary yeah, too risky. these days. So you got to pay for your own benefits. You have to uh, cover your own taxes and all that. Yeah, and how much is life insurance if you're yeah. a, a soldier of fortune? I have no idea. Oh, but it's astronomical. Yeah. So uh, at the end of the day, once you take out all the money for all those things and for you know milk and sugar, they're probably not paid a whole lot more than a regular military personnel. They're, probably they're, they're not. Maybe sure. who knows? I think if if you went to work for Blackwater or something, you could probably make a pretty decent amount of cash. Right. Um, and there's some other things that um, private military companies and contractors do that uh, aren't necessarily war based and are actually kind of cool. Um, there is a group that train uh, guides who 
uh, combat poachers yeah. in the Congo right? Um, to prevent the extinction of things like the black rhino. Uh-huh. That's pretty cool it work. It is pretty cool. Private security for corporations. Obviously, when uh, De Beers is poking around Africa and Exxon and BP or De Beers definitely needs the uh, private yeah. security. They're traveling around the country in hostile areas, so they need the, the best of the best. And like you said, um, guarding uh, high-risk dignitaries like sure. Hamid Karzai, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then apparently they also are used in counter-drug operations. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I didn't either. I mean, hey, DEA can't do it all, right? Yeah, good point. Yeah, so... Especially now, and the, the use of private military contractors really exploded in the 90s. And they become, like you said, so far entrenched uh-huh. in our um, military that it's, there's almost no separating. We become so dependent on them. Yeah, and they also don't necessarily engage exclusively in um, you know, gun-toting missions. Yeah. Like they could cook. They the the same company can <laughs> can send cooks, drivers, like sure. all all this stuff yeah, yeah. that frees up our soldiers. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. But there are some risks, some definite downsides to using mercenaries, right? Yeah, I would say the the one that stood out to me the most is what you really want in a situation like war is loyalty above all else. Definitely. And when you're hiring a mercenary, they're after the buck and they're not necessarily even from your country. So you can't really count on that nationalism. Right, that ideology that yeah. motivates you to go, you know, kill. Yeah, that's that's the biggest issue, I would say. There's actually a famous story from the 14th century about the Almogaveras. Yeah. That's Almogaveras. Yeah, that's good. The, how you say, how you Almogaveras. Say. <laughs> Spanish um, frontiersmen. Right, some uh, Byzantine leaders hired these guys to uh, defend uh, Byzantium. Right against the Turks. Yeah, and they did successfully, and then they turned on the Byzantines and um, basically just walloped them. Did a what number six? A number six. A number six on them uh, for the next two years. Yeah. So that didn't work out too well. Yeah, you're, the the very people you hire to defend you can say, you know what? Let's um let's just go ahead and take everything you got afterward. You know? Yeah. It's much like hiring a hitman. Uh yeah, a really really trained former military hitman. Right. Um. There's also uh, that if you're in a military detachment, a, a standing military detachment, right, right. political army, um, there's a lot of, like you said, loyalty to the state, but there's also a lot of um, interpersonal loyalty right. among soldiers sure. that doesn't necessarily happen with um, with mercenaries. Yeah. So there can be a communication breakdown. They're not sharing intelligence, that kind yeah. of thing. I imagine they look out for each other, and that's about it. Right. And whoever probably they were hired to protect specifically. Right. But all bets are off at the end of the day when you got a mercenary. It, I think that's pretty much the key takeaway here, Chuck. All bets are off. All bets are off and when you, you hire a mercenary. Yeah, you they know what you're getting you, into, buddy. Sure, that was that, that's in the in the fine print. Yes, sir. When you write that initial contract, Chuck, uh, we talked about this article. I think we covered most of it, but there's a bunch more information uh, that we didn't get in this fine article by William Harris. And if you want to learn more about mercenaries, just type that word into the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, which leads us, of course, to listener mail. Yes, Josh. Uh, I'm going to call this one from Anya from Boston. Just simple. Okay. And uh, this is about a near-death experience. And we we got a few of these, but I liked Anya's. I just listened to your podcast on NDEs. If you couldn't tell from the subject... I had one that I find interesting. I had one myself. Mm -hmm. I can't remember it, but my mom told me what I said about it at the time. I was three years old and was sick in the hospital. I can't remember why now, but my lungs were mostly solid. 
not a good way to be born. <laughs> or I guess, yeah, she had to be born that way. It's like breathing through butter. Yeah. Uh, suddenly she flatlined, and she lived through it. And she woke up. Uh, her mom said she had a dream, or that the girl had a dream, where I was standing at the entrance to the hospital, and a big yellow school bus pulled up. There was no driver, and when I tried to get on the bus, a little bald girl about a year older than me told me I could not get on the bus because I was too young. Just a note, I had no idea what even a school bus was at this point in time because I'd been living in England. So that is my near-death experience. She tried to board, sounds like, a bus to heaven, and the little gatekeeper said, you're too young, you're not ready to go, so go back. She went back. So look out for uh, bald schoolgirls. Yeah, I guess so. You know you're dead when you encounter one of them. And that's Anya from Boston. Well, thanks a lot, Anya. And yeah, we did get a lot of pretty cool emails. Thanks to everybody who sent in and shared their near-death experience with us. Some were just off the charts chilling. Indeed. Yeah. Um, If you have uh, any kind of story you want to share with Chuck or I, if you are a soldier of fortune, somebody for hire... uh, if you are a line cook at a chain restaurant, we want to hear from you. Send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the howstuffworks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?